0: This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by Monument Grills and their Denali 605 Pro Smart Propane Gas Grill. Featuring six main burners and an infrared side burner, the Denali grill solves a lot of backyard barbecue complaints before they start. There's no waiting for the grill to heat up because the Denali heats to 700 degrees Fahrenheit in just 10 minutes. And you don't have to worry about uneven heat, because the Denali features patented Blaze Zone technology for consistent temperatures across the whole grill. It also has a clear viewing lid, so you don't have to keep opening and shutting it, and Bluetooth app control for cooking without interrupting your conversation. The Denali 605 Pro is not just a grill, it's an experience. A juicy, delicious, perfectly seared, medium-rare experience. Upgrade your backyard game with the Denali 605 Pro at MonumentGrills.com. And don't miss out on $45 off with the code OUTSIDE45.
1: From Outside Magazine, this is the Outside Podcast.
2: Here, you are never alone you are totally alone but you are never alone because this is very solitary uh, experience this is totally solitary it's true that sometimes you talk to other runners but that's minutes and when i go to sleep i go to my uh, room i don't talk to anyone i exchange uh, talking with my wife and family but Mostly solitude. Solitude with a lot of people around you.
1: It's officially spring, that most energizing season. For outdoor endurance athletes, this is when training ramps up. Runs and rides get faster and longer. People really start going for it. This is Michael Roberts. I've been an outside for a couple decades now. And I can tell you that pretty much every year, my colleagues and I talk about the fact that amateur competitors just keep going harder. Remember when running a marathon seemed like a big deal? For some of us, it still is. But more and more athletes are entering ultra distance events. Ironmans have turned into double and triple Ironmans. There are races that have people ascending the vertical equivalent of Mount Everest twice. Whatever you might imagine as the most absurd challenge possible, people are out there doing it. Why? Well, talk to anyone who takes on a contest like this, and they'll tell you. It transforms them. Which brings us to today's episode, a replay from our Sweat Science series from a few years ago. Our former host, Peter Wright, was hunting around for especially grueling endurance events when he learned about the longest certified foot race in the world. It's called the Sri Chinmoy Self-Transcendence 3,100-mile race. And it's held in what might seem an unlikely spot, a city block in Queens, New York. So we asked reporter Stephanie Joyce to investigate. I'll let Peter and Stephanie take it from here.
3: I'm walking down 168th Street. It's a hot summer afternoon. It's probably in the low 80s and sticky. Uh, There's no one out on the streets right now. This is just kind of like a nice middle-class neighborhood in Queens. I don't see any runners, although presumably this is the block that they run around.
0: The entire race, all 3,100 miles of it, takes place on this single city block. Runners have to do a minimum of 60 miles a day, a little less than two marathons, in order to finish the race within the 52-day window.
3: That means circling the block at least 109 times every 24 hours. But the fastest runners do even more laps. Kobe Oren was on number 111 one evening when I caught up with him. He slowed down to a speed walk while we talked.
2: You know, the irony here, that you run all day, Yeah. you go home, you go to sleep, but when you rest, what are you dreaming of? Running. Here. <laughs> Hello. Hey, So I run all day, and then I go to sleep. And you dream of running. Here. <laughs> ah, that's funny. <laughs> no, that's uh, Tragic.
0: The race started as a way of paying tribute to the meditation guru Sri Chinmoy, whose philosophy of self-actualization revolved around pushing the perceived limits of human capacity. He died in 2007, but his followers have continued staging this invite-only race every year.
3: This was Kobe's first year running the race. He's Israeli, and at 46, he was one of the younger competitors. In his day job, he works as a clinical psychologist in Haifa. He's maybe 5'9", bald, and favors brightly colored running clothes. He gives off the vibe of a rubber band stretched tight.
2: How many laps are you trying to do today? Uh, I will do, I'm supposed to do 118. But I never can do exactly what I'm supposed, so I will do 119.
0: Kobe has been running ultras for 10 years. His first was a 50-miler in 2008. Then he ran a 100-miler, and then 200, and then 300, until eventually he worked his way up to running a race that was however far you could run in 10 days that was put on by Sri Chimnoy's followers in 2016.
3: Kobe won that race by running 755 miles. And after that, Sri Chimnoy's disciples extended an invitation for the 3,100-mile race. But initially, Kobe said no. His youngest son was only four years old, too little for him to leave for two months. He said he would come when his son was six.
4: Uh, So uh, they gave me a rain check. They told me, "Okay, come in 2018. Uh, We have a space for you, but it's important that, that you will do a big race on cement.
3: Most of Kobe's previous races had been on trails, and they wanted to make sure that his body was really ready for the punishing impact of running thousands of miles on a Queen City sidewalk. So in the summer of 2017, Kobe ran a thousand-mile race in South Africa on a paved golf course. He told me that an attacking peacock was the most interesting thing that happened to him the whole time. When his body recovered from that race, he began training for the self-transcendence race. That meant spending months doing as much as five hours of training a day. But it didn't actually involve much long-distance running. He was more interested in training his mind to suffer.
4: And it took me a year to understand that the longer the, the mileage, the that I enjoy more the run. When I train myself, I do the opposite. My training is not long runs. Because I know that I suffer and it's more difficult for me to run shorter distances, all of my training sessions are short. I take the the most difficult things and I do it. I could have gone for a run of 14 hours. I know that after a few hours, I wouldn't suffer. I will enjoy it. So what would I learn from that run? So... When I train very hard, I do four, five sessions of training a day. But there will, there will be one hour of walking, one hour of weightlifting, one hour of hill climbing, one hour of... There won't be anything that is very long.
3: The other thing Kobe did to prepare was to bulk up, knowing that his body would start to consume itself for fuel over the course of the race.
4: I talked with the people who have done this race in the past. They told me, that you lose a lot of body mass, and to gain weight. Uh, and I knew myself mentally and physically, and I do. I knew that if I come with eight, 10 pounds overweight of fat, it will depress me. So I decided to come with 10, 15 pounds more of muscles.
3: So when Kobe towed the starting line in Queens, he was physically primed. But emotionally, he was less certain. The furthest he'd ever run was that thousand-mile race in South Africa. This race would be three times as long.
4: When we met all the runners, I saw that that a lot of the runners were um, seemed from the outside more secure. And I I looked at myself, and people reacted that I looked concerned, and I was concerned. Everybody looked so happy and relaxed. I was concerned. I talked to my, I told to myself to to be confident. It seems not uh, not logical to me.
3: That uncertainty is a familiar feeling if you've ever towed the line in a long race. Even if you know you've done the training and your body is ready, mentally you can't help but wonder if you have what it takes. Of the 10 runners in this year's race, seven were disciples of Sri Chinmoy, and almost all of them had completed the race at least once before. I
4: ran the first loop with people who have run this loop 30,000 times before. I ran one time, and
3: this is the 30,000. The loop is 0. 0.5488 miles. From 168th Street, runners turn west onto the six-lane Grand Central Parkway for two-tenths of a mile, then veer back into the neighborhood on a tree-lined street past handball courts and a busy playground. To close the loop, they run down 84th Avenue along the edge of a baseball diamond.
4: I love the playground. I felt that seeing the people enjoying themselves there, something that gave me a lot of strength.
3: The aid station and the makeshift headquarters for the race are some folding tables set up on the sidewalk on 84th Avenue, across from a line of parked camper vans. Volunteer race counters keep track of each runner from the time the course opens at 6 a.m. to when it closes at midnight, logging their laps every few minutes. Every day, racers change the direction of the loop so as not to overuse the muscles on one side of the body while rounding the corners.
4: A lot of people ask me about uh, circuit running. If it's boring, you run the same lap over, oh, it's so boring. I think that if you run and you are bored, the course is not the problem. If you are with yourself and you are bored, you are the problem.
3: The race course seems purposefully designed to inflict maximum suffering. Between the exhaust, the concrete, and a largely static scenery, it's hard to think of a more miserable place to run 3,100 miles. But the course was actually chosen for a practical reason. Shri Moy, the guru, used to live in this neighborhood, and many of his acolytes still do. Because of that, it's easy for them to corral volunteers and arrange housing for the participants. Even though he was among the least experienced competitors, from the beginning of the race, Kobe had his sights set on winning. In order to do that, he would need to beat out the race favorite, a 52-year-old Russian named Vazu Duji, who won for the second time in 2017. The race started on June 17th at 6 a.m., in the middle of a minor heat wave. By mid-afternoon, the temperature was in the high 80s, and the humidity was suffocating. But that didn't slow Kobe down, or his competition. By midnight, Kobe had run 83 miles, over 152 laps. So had Vazu. They were just seconds apart. For the next few days, Vazu and Kobe traded leads of just a few laps, with each of them averaging at least 70 miles a day. They ran through thunderstorms and windstorms and the beating heat of the New York City summer. Unlike a marathon, the 3,100-mile race doesn't tend to attract a crowd. There are usually few bystanders, and people who live in the neighborhood seem to almost entirely ignore the middle-aged men and women doing infinite laps of the block. I watched runners break their stride on more than one occasion to avoid a pedestrian ambling obliviously on their cell phone or pushing a stroller straight down the middle of the sidewalk. There was a time in the U.S. when multi-day foot races attracted a lot of attention. In the late 1800s, the sport of pedestrianism drew sold-out crowds in the tens of thousands to arenas like Madison Square Garden. Racers competed on indoor tracks in six- and ten-day contests for purses as big as a million dollars in today's money. They were celebrities, their faces splashed across the front pages of newspapers. But the pedestrianism craze was short-lived. It turned out watching people propel themselves in circles for days on end wasn't actually that entertaining. So if Kobe won, there would be no prize money and there wouldn't be tens of thousands of fans clamoring for his photograph. In fact, like most runners in the race, he'd gone into debt just to be there and would leave with the same plastic statue and bouquet of flowers, whether he won or finished last.
4: When people heard about this race, they told me it's crazy. I don't think that crazy is the right term. It's unbelievable, it's unhuman. Everyone who who participates in this race is, is not human.
3: As Kobe ran, he was mostly on his own. Because he hadn't raised enough money in advance of the race, he could only afford to hire a support crew for four hours a day. The rest of the time, he was in charge of managing all of his own food and hydration.
4: The organizers talk to me a lot of times, Be happy, smile, be content, don't be worried. But if I'm not worried, I will arrive at my station and I won't have nothing to eat. And I won't have the salts that I need. And I won't have the things that I need to be sent for my country because I don't have them.
3: Nobody will send them because you didn't tell that.
4: So not being worried, I couldn't uh, relinquish that.
3: A small army of disciples cook vegetarian meals for the racers three times a day. When the neighborhood ice cream truck rolls around, a volunteer usually races over to buy half a dozen soft serves or a box of ice cream sandwiches. Racers often eat their meals on the go out of paper cups as they continue circling the block at a half trot. They need to consume upwards of 10,000 calories a day in order to replace the energy they expend. But that's difficult for a body always in motion. A runner from Scotland was almost sidelined in the first few days of the race by stomach problems.
0: Which brings us to the actual challenge of ultra-endurance races. Because when you're talking about running 100 miles, or 200, or 3,000, going fast usually just means not stopping. And getting through the next mile isn't really about having the strongest or fastest muscles or the highest VO2 max.
5: One of the interesting things that happens when you're going for a long time is is that the the challenges you face start to sound a lot more like life rather than some sort of this,
0: you know very specific sporting challenge. This is Alex Hutchinson, you know, author of the book Endure, who we've been talking to throughout this whole series. And what Alex is saying is that in short races, it's all about perfect form and squeezing every ounce of power out of your muscles. But keep increasing the distance of the race... And it becomes less about the muscles and more about your mental state. And so the point here is that as you get to these really long
5: races, it's no longer about what your muscles are capable of. It's what your brain is willing to ask your muscles to do. You're no longer talking about some sort of singular, absolute limit of endurance. You're talking about how well the body and, of course, the mind can hold together under like 50 different stresses Of trying to like are you able to get nutrition in are you able to find things that you can handle eating in that quantity while you're exercising can you keep it down are you digesting it Uh, is your stomach working are your legs you know are you getting blisters are you getting chafing are you getting sunstroke are you getting frostbite so in practice those are the sorts of things that uh, often tend to bite people in these long races, rather than like their VO2 max or or anything like
0: that. So managing the needs of your body becomes the central focus for the endurance runner. And for Kobe, that was one way in which he was at a disadvantage. Between
3: running 18 hours a day and also managing his own food and hydration, it was a difficult start to the race for Kobe. Especially since when his skeleton crew of helpers did show up, they weren't always helpful.
4: I talked with my crew. And I told my, I told them things, and they nodded with their heads as if they understood, and they didn't understand. So a cool man could go home. I would tell him, please prepare for me drinks and eat and foods. He will nod and tell yes, and after three laps I go oh, I see that he is gone and I have nothing. And there were a lot of times that I felt as if some. Some air force was testing me, and I reacted very badly. A lot of times I shouted at them, I was ill-tempered. The name of the person that helps you is called the handler. He's supposed to support you. And I felt a lot of the times that my crew, I don't know what the other words that is the opposite of supporting, but they were like failing me.
3: But Kobe didn't let that slow him down. A week into the race, when temperatures finally started to cool off, he opened up a six-mile lead over Vazu. That same day, a rabbi from a local Jewish organization stopped by to see Kobe and drop off a care package of kosher food. And uh, It's something that
4: made a good feeling, that my religion, they, they want to help me. I didn't know what to ask, and he didn't know what to bring. And he brought me wine. And I told my crew... There was a Brazilian girl. I told her, uh, you can take the wine as a gift, or you, you throw it. In in the, this kind of race, you drink beer, not beer with alcohol, beer without alcohol, because it's salty. So you gain salt, and it's it makes you thirsty, so you drink more. So I told her, take the wine for yourself, or throw it, because I can't drink wine. And she told me yes. And I go for some laps, and then she brings me two drinks. And I drink one of them. I thought it was beer. I drink one of them, and I tell myself, what, wow, this beer, I don't understand the, the taste of the beer. I drink one glass, and then at the second glass, I smell it better, and I tell myself, it smells like wine. And I tell her, did you take? give me wine? And she tell me, yes. I wanted to surprise you. I I I threw the uh, the glass I finished the loop and then I threw the bottle to the trash because I understood that, that I will get alcohol which is uh, you can't run with alcohol it will kill you so not kill you kill you
2: but kill your race
3: it doesn't take much to kill a race A few days of missed mileage can put a runner so far behind that they have no hope of finishing the 3,100 miles, let alone winning. The only American in the race this year was forced to drop out early because the blisters on her feet wouldn't heal, making every step excruciating. On day 14, Kobe passed the 1,000 mile mark, beating his previous time by more than a day, even as temperatures climbed into the high 90s. He was still in the lead, but Vazu was right behind him, and Kobe was struggling.
4: The way you cope with pain in this phase is crucial, because you will have pain. There is no going around it, and uh, you you need to know that you can live with pain. If you think that you will be pain free here, it's it, you are not going to last the second week.
3: For Kobe, two weeks in, the most painful part of the day came at the end, after he finished running. The race organizers had put him up in a nearby house with roommates.
4: I I can only make the person who is listening to imagine what it's like to arrive at 12 o'clock at your apartment. You want to take a shower, put ice on your uh, joints, uh, arrange everything for tomorrow, and then you close the lights, at 12.40, and somebody's snoring, and and you can't go to sleep.
0: The staple ingredients of a perfect summer are no secret. Sunshine, swimming, and backyard barbecues. The rest of it is just dressing, on the side. So for the best summer, you need the best grill. And it doesn't get any better than Monument Grills Denali 605 Pro. A premium six-burner smart gas grill that brings modern convenience to an age-old tradition. Crafted with stainless steel for durability, an infrared burner for faster, even heating, Bluetooth temperature monitoring, and a lid that lets you see what's going on on your grill without changing the temperature inside. It's a grill that's both sizzle and steak. Whether you're a seasoned grill master or just starting out, it's sure to impress. Your friends will be amazed by the Denali 605 Pro. Use code OUTSIDE45 for an exclusive discount and enjoy fast, free shipping.
3: The day after Kobe passed the thousand-mile mark, a heat wave brought temperatures in the triple digits. On every lap, Kobe had to pass the playground on the corner, where neighborhood kids splashed around in sprinklers. It took everything he had not to stop and join in the fun. But Kobe was determined to win, and Vazu was gaining on him quickly. So instead of stopping, he just kept running around and around the block. But as he ran, he found himself wondering, why was he running? Was it to win? What did winning even mean?
4: Uh, and I started to think to myself, is to to run 3,100 miles. It's just like running 1,000 miles, but three times. And that's it, that is self-transcendence. If I go 100%, I'm risking the race. So I, maybe I will win, but there's a chance that I won't finish.
3: Was the chance to win worth the risk of maybe not finishing? Deep down, Kobe wanted to win, but he needed to finish.
4: And I thought to myself, what was your first objective? Your first objective was to come here as a representative of your country and to finish the race. Not to win the race, finish so maybe you should change your attitude. Maybe that is to transcend. To, to
3: that evening, as he circled the block for the 2,000th time, he noticed little flashes of light in the grass.
4: And I understood that this is fireflies. In my country, there aren't any fireflies. But all of them ra- were raised from the ground. And it seems like there is a blanket of lights over the grass. And I ran, and there was a runner re- uh, near me. And I told told him, look at that, it's amazing, what a sight. And he told me, but why are you surprised? We are seeing this sight from the start of the race. I haven't seen that. This was my first time.
3: By the end of the day, Kobe had run 64 miles. But Vazu ran further, passing Kobe and finishing the day two laps ahead. Even though there was just a mile of distance between them, to Kobe, in that moment, it seemed like Vazu had an insurmountable lead. And he had to make a decision. Would he keep pushing as hard as possible to try and catch up, but maybe not finish? Or could he live with not winning? Maybe he thought, when you're running the most difficult race in the world against the two-time defending champion, winning was simply getting to the end of the race. Maybe that was what they meant by self-transcendence.
4: I decided to, not to push 100%, but to reserve energy to 70%. That the main perspective is to try to finish the race. And that was a thought that if you want to achieve, you need to relinquish the competitive side of yourself.
3: Once Kobe decided to slow down, it was like a huge weight had been lifted. Suddenly, he had more time to rest, more time to prepare his food and drink, and more time to recruit extra help. But slowing down and shifting away from the tunnel vision of winning also gave him time to think about what he had sacrificed to do the race. He had missed his youngest son's kindergarten graduation and his oldest son's 17th birthday, the fact that he would never be able to relive those moments had been eating away at him from the beginning of the race, and it just got worse. Suddenly, Kobe was in a race against himself.
4: I'm talking with them, but when I talk to them, I, I miss them more. It it uh, doesn't relax me. The first thoughts that I have at the morning are of my family. And I'm going to see them, ah, two months from now, I'll see the family. Ah, That's relaxing. So uh, thinking of the family and talking to them didn't help me. You think in in front, when you go for such a race, you think about what your body will go through. You can't imagine what will happen to you emotionally. And I felt from each day that passed, I felt a, a bigger hole, a longing for my
0: family. And it's something that turned me about. And here's where it becomes clear, whether by design or convenience, just how mentally challenging this race course really is. Because if you want to run 3,000 miles, you should really run from California to Maine. It's easier, mentally. Not only will the scenery be incredible, but giving up is inconvenient. You're in the middle of something that you haven't finished yet. You need to get to the other side of the country so it's a reason to keep going. But when you're running around the same city block over and over, giving up is easy. You pass the aid station a 100 times a day. All you have to do is stop. In a race like this, your mind is the only thing moving you forward. Right, I think fundamentally
5: what's going to limit you is uh, your desire to keep going. Uh, the, the, the the mental aspect of willingness to keep suffering is, is eventually going to, uh, if not stop you, then at least slow you down.
0: We've talked about it in previous episodes, but regardless of how much pain you're actually in, or how fatigued you actually are, it's the perception of your experience that's at the heart of your ability to endure. And so your brain is integrating all these
5: signals from... How you know how your leg muscles are feeling and how fast your heart is beating and how hard you're breathing and all these things. But it's also integrating this sort of general sensation of how you feel and 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 w- what your beliefs are about how things are going. And so, if you believe that you're on the road to success and confident and capable of uh, completing the task you've set out for yourself, you're more likely to to sort of feel your effort as manageable and to decide that you can keep going than if you are thinking to yourself uh you know this is terrible i can't believe how hard this is why did i ever sign up for this
0: so your beliefs about your performance change your performance which if you pay any attention to professional sports helps explain why so many top athletes are incredibly superstitious
5: yeah the placebo effect has has been a dirty word for a long time and and for good reasons uh i mean for scientists it, it ruins their experiments and and uh you know, it, it sort of is synonymous with lying to people. But it's actually very, very useful. I mean, the reason it's such a problem in experiments is that the placebo effect works. Um, and and so if you get away from the, the sort of vision of placebo placebos and sugar pills and things like that and think more generally about belief, uh, then y- y- you get some hints that this is actually a very powerful thing and not something that you necessarily want to get rid of, that in fact... If you're a coach rather than a scientist or an athlete, you want to be harnessing these sorts of belief effects.
0: So if you believe, like most of the runners in this race, that you're on a quest of spiritual enlightenment put forth by your holy guru, you'll keep putting one foot in front of the other. But if you're just a guy from Israel who's given up on the idea that he can win, and you miss your family so much that it hurts, what keeps you going? Why are you running? The middle of a
3: race is not when you want to be asking yourself those questions. And Kobe knew it. He's a psychologist by training, and he could see his mental health deteriorating. But he didn't know what to do about it.
4: My work is not in real time. Let's take and and say it's like in a war. A psychologist that works with people who have been hurt mentally at war doesn't do that when the enemy is firing at him.
3: But slowly, as he continued running lap after lap, the root of Kobe's mental anguish started to become clear to him. And he realized he didn't have it in him to finish the race without his family. He was either gonna have to drop out or bring his family to the race. He and his wife talked about it, and they decided they would petition the U.S. consulate for an emergency visa for his oldest son, Eli, to come crew for him.
4: So he arrived unplanned. His presence was I'm not talking about his helping. (laughs) I'm not I'm not going to say bad things about his helping, but that was not the the main point. The main point was the symbol. I had my family with me.
3: For Eli, it was not how he imagined his first visit to the US. Sitting on a street corner in Queens, handing off sugary drinks to his dad every five to ten minutes. Unlike Kobe, Eli is not a runner. And the whole thing didn't make much sense to him, even once he saw it in person. But for Kobe, his son's presence was exactly what he needed. Suddenly, he had something to think about other than running.
4: When I see him, I'm concerned if he's sitting in the sun, if he eats, if he drinks. So you are not only concerned about yourself. That, that it's, it's something that can be heard like you have more obligations. But as a father, it's, it's put me in another position. I'm not just a runner. I'm a father. I need to know, did you sleep? Did you eat? Have you put a sunscreen? Did you? So it gives me space of comfort to, to be in another position.
5: When you're dealing with a task that is fundamentally about overcoming mental barriers, then who's to say what will help and what won't because that's it's 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 fundamentally a psychological question if it's about what will make you feel better then the answer isn't isn't cut and dried and it may be that someone who's in tune with their own intuitions will be able to to figure out what it is they need to do
0: because the way our brains protect us from our actual physical limits endurance almost always comes down to a choice either keep going or stop And there are lots of factors, but the people who can continually choose to keep going are the folks who have some deeper motivation than being first or setting a record. There's something else to prove. I wanted to see
4: if I can uh, manage to finish this race. I knew that only 22 years and only 40 people have finished that race. And I have known that most of who finished the race are disciples. I know that there are different techniques to cope in with stress and with pain. And I think that was my goal, to see that I can cope with that. That's what I got out of it, understanding that I, I can cope, uh, not with flying colors, but I can cope with everything. It will be difficult, I will suffer a lot, but I can cope with everything.
3: On Thursday, August 2nd, day 46 of the 3,100-mile race, Kobe completed his 5,649th lap, crossing the finish line to cheers and bell ringing from a few dozen bystanders. He didn't win. Bazu finished a full day before him. But Kobe did finish, becoming the first Israeli in the history of the race to do so. He sat cross-legged on the ground, tears welling up in his eyes as a group of disciples sang to him, celebrating the end of the race. But then, after the crowd dispersed, Kobe turned his attention to the sprinklers in the playground that he had passed so many thousands of times. He wanted to take a chair and a beer over there and just sit in the water. But he also knew that thirty one hundred miles is just seven miles shy of five thousand kilometers. And Kobe had decided as he ran that he wasn't just going to finish thirty one hundred miles, he was going to make it to five thousand kilometers.
4: Which is thirteen more laps. And I thought to myself, are you going to go now to the spin class or finish the job and then I told myself you need to you've done only three thousand one hundred miles, you haven't finished the job. The job is five thousand.
3: So having run two marathons every day for a month and a half, Kobe ran thirteen more laps, seven miles. At any point he could have stopped, sat down in the water, and someone would have brought him a chair and a beer and called him a success. But on every lap, instead of stopping, he decided to keep going.
1: This episode was written and produced by Stephanie Joyce and edited by Peter frick Music by Robbie Carver. If you're training for your own life-changing event, check out the courses available now at our new online learning hub, learn.outside.com. There are more than 2,000 videos across 450 lessons for beginners and veterans alike covering topics ranging from fitness and nutrition to running and cycling to survival and gear repair. They're all 100% free to Outside Plus members. Again, that's learn.outside.com. We'll be back next week with a conversation with author Cheryl Strayed about the enduring impact of her book, Wild, on how we think about big adventures and really long hikes on the 10th anniversary of its publication.